Wessex LMCs supporting you and your practice. Welcome to the podcast of the webinar recorded on Wednesday the 23rd of June. Um, welcome everybody, it's nice to see you all, I can see you all sort of gradually joining us, we will start promptly at one o'clock. Um, my name is Louise Greenwood, I'm Director of Primary, and I'm not, I'm the Director of Education for Wessex LMCs and joined with um, Lisa and Michelle, our Director of Primary Care, and I guest today, Alan Frame from MDD US. This particular focus today on our practice manager update is a focusing on complaints and we've asked Alan Frame from MDD US to do a short presentation and take questions on the complaints and all the things that you're going through at the moment. So please take the opportunity to ask him, get some advice from him, and um, we look forward to hearing what he's got to say. So, Alan, I'll ask you to share your screen and hand over to you. Thank you. Thank you. So you can see there the title. Uh, it's very short today. We don't have long. It's a huge topic area. Uh, but focusing on not just not about complaints, because we'll all be well-versed in dealing with you know, the impromptu face-to-face complaint, and maybe dealing with complaints informally and resolving them, then the investigation and responding to complaints in writing. But one of the key areas that we certainly are receiving a lot of inquiries from our members about just now is the increase in bad behaviour uh, and certainly challenging uh, situations that practices are experiencing due to the COVID pandemic. And a lot of that is round about uh, new ways of working and online consultations and triage and not being able to see perhaps your GP when the patient thinks they ought to get a face-to-face appointment. So there's obviously clinical guidance uh, that's been updated all the time and how we manage that. But people are getting upset and angry and frustrated and that's natural. And as a result, practice staff are feeling frustrated uh, and perhaps maybe not unsupported but exposed. So we're talking about some of the the key areas here and some hints and tips. Uh, So a a challenging patient contact, let's call it that, can mean different things to different people. That's important to say that right from the outset. Know what, what may be a traumatic incident for one member of the practice team may be water off a duck's back to the other. Uh, so it's important as an employer that you recognise that people do respond and react and process uh, challenging situations differently too. But a big challenge, I think, during this time, during the pandemic, is ensuring that the gap that can sometimes exist between service expectations uh, and a service delivery doesn't get any bigger than it perhaps normally is or can be. So I thought I was chatting with Louise the other day and she relayed an incident to me and I thought this is a really quite a good one just to illustrate some of the points I'm talking about here. So this was a situation in the practice that was a receptionist on her own behind the desk and a patient suddenly approached the desk and screamed out, I hope you all die of COVID. So what are we dealing with here? Is that a complaint? Well, probably not. So is it a threat? Well, it might depend how you perceive what that's been said. What it is is certainly unacceptable behaviour in any sense of the word. But if we then change that a little, if 
a patient now approaches a receptionist and instead screams out, I've been trying to get my 11-year-old daughter seen by a doctor for over a week now. I hope you all die of COVID. So is this a complaint? Well, actually, in there, there probably is. There's a verbal complaint there. Someone, it's an expression of dissatisfaction about a part of the service. But equally, you know, it's still unacceptable. Now, and maybe a threat, it would depend how the individual took that, or is it just something that's nasty and out of spite or emotion and anger that's fueling it. But the problem is, you know, you're left in the position, how do you deal with this at that moment in time? And the difficult one is it's fairly easy if you get a written letter that contains something like that, because at least you get time to digest it all, consider what you're going to do, and then respond appropriately. It's the sudden in-your-face uh, situation when this happens uh, that people will react differently and will react emotionally themselves. You know, and if you think about what's going on there, you know, that's a behaviour, someone screaming that out to that receptionist. That's what we can see in here. That's unacceptable in anyone's book. But the important stuff, I think, is what's feeling at what's going on beneath the surface of that iceberg there. The things that we can't see or perceive. What's caused that individual to get to that point where they're now standing in front of your reception and screaming that in their face. So it might be something to do with previous attitudes, previous experiences. It's more likely to be about emotions. Uh, an emotional brain's kicked in over the rational brain and the behaviour is what you're experiencing as aggression. So the the underlying emotion, the feeling, that's that's perfectly legitimate because we can all feel angry and upset. Uh, what's not acceptable is allowing that to become an aggressive act or a behaviour that then impacts on someone else. So complaints you know, are legitimate in themselves. They may be fueled by a less frustration, annoyance, desperation. That's an emotion, it's an angry response. And this is where positive interactions can identify and deal with a complaint or an incident like this at a very early stage. But it requires the individual, the member of staff, to have the requisite skills through both experience, probably, and proper training. But equally, unacceptable behaviour should be challenged and managed eh, appropriately and proportionately. Now, I found when I was doing some research last year for some presentation or talk I was doing, and I found this from sort of customer-focused, consumer-focused approaches for businesses. I think some of this you can translate quite easily to what goes on within a typical general practice. Because if you accept nowadays that you may not look at patients as customers, you may take a very traditional old-fashioned view of their patients and that's what they'll always be. But they're certainly service users and nowadays, especially younger generations, do see themselves as consumers of healthcare, just as they would be a consumer if they were going out to a restaurant for a nice meal for buying goods or having their car service somewhere, they expect a good quality service. And what it was estimated in this study was, you know, if you have a dissatisfied customer, let's call them a patient, um, 
roughly only 4% will ever actually make a formal complaint. Now you think, well, that's good. In a way, that's a small number. But if you think about it, that's 96% of complaints and issues that you might not ever hear about. So things that are happening every day. And those 96%, what they'll do is they'll just go away quietly, but they'll tell other people. And that never used to be much of a problem because they go home and tell their immediate family or their friends or their mates down the pub. And that would be kind of the end of their bad-mouthing what happened in the practice. That's not the case nowadays, as I'm sure you're aware, because they're more likely to go straight on to social media. And before you know it, it's gone viral and there'll be all sorts of people jumping in, both uh, supporting and liking comments. And usually there's always a, there's usually a small cohort that will be more reasoned and will actually even support their local general practice. But anyway, the cat's out of the bag. And this study reckoned that you know, a dissatisfied consumer will tell, on average, eight to ten other people about their experience. And what it also means is, in practical terms, so if you've got an individual patient who's nursing this perceived wrong, uh, they're actually probably going to become a difficult patient to deal with moving forward. So things will come back to bite you, maybe in the most unusual or unexpected situations. But what we do know from good customer service principles is that where a concern or complaint is dealt with, as it's raised, effectively on the spot by a member of staff who's competent and skilled, 95% of people will positively engage again and still view the service favourably. Now, the other thing to remember is it's not all a one-way street here. And I was looking at the NHS Constitution for England, and that actually does lay out quite clearly so while we are expected to manage complaints, to listen to comments, eh, maybe make allowances in certain situations, eh, it's about it's a partnership. And the constitution does make it clear that the public patients have their own responsibilities as well, that you can see in the screen there. And the second paragraph, you know, it's you know, it's about treating all NHS personnel and other patients with respect. Uh, and things that are unacceptable, that's violence certainly, causing nuisance or disturbance in the NHS premises, they could well result in prosecution because those are often criminal acts. And it's about you know recognising that being abusive in itself or resorting to violent behaviour might actually result in an individual being refused access to NHS services. Now that's rare that that happens. And it's actually problematic in primary care because if you're uh, an individual that is living in the United Kingdom uh, legally, uh, you are legally entitled to be registered with a primary care practitioner. Uh, that's not the case necessarily with hospital-based services. So it means there's this cohort of patients out there that are bouncing around from practice to practice, uh, being struck off practice lists, but they have to be taken on somewhere else. So it's a problem that's been moved about. Um, so it's, you know, it's not as clear-cut or as straightforward as it may seem. And as I said, I'm kind of jumping through huge topic areas in itself here, just to sort of give you a flavour of some of the issues. And this is one that, you know, we often, we get a lot of calls about from practices. It's usually following a 
an incident that's happened and there's been some quick discussion or quick meeting has been set up and while everyone's still quite raw and emotional, uh, decisions have been made sometimes by a practice manager, sometimes by maybe a senior partner, but a decision's quickly made to remove the individual from the practice list and they're told so in no uncertain terms. And in fact, sometimes with known practices go further, they don't just remove the individual, they remove their entire family. Now, the problem with that is, you know, that's going to be open to challenge and that individual still is entitled to be registered somewhere. So there is a process for, you know, stopping contact, for ending a relationship between a practice and a patient. And some of the important factors that should be considered before taking such action is what you can see in the screen there, you know, is what you're doing, could it be construed as being discriminatory in some way? Perhaps under the Quality Act, people will use protected characteristics very readily nowadays to claim that they've been discriminated against on the grounds of one of those uh, protections. Another thing to take into account is, is just what's happened, you know, is there an element or an effect of illness and that's maybe causing this individual to react in ways that are out with normal for them? Is it just basic anxiety and fear in the patient themselves? People react in strange ways when you're put under stress and your fight or flight mechanisms activated. And what you often see in situations like, you know, the one I described at the start is, you know, once that individual goes away and calms down and thinks about it, and if there's any decency about them, they often will come back later and say, look, I'm really sorry, I've got to apologise for my behaviour, I was bang out of order. It was because of blah, 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 blah. And the other thing that's such thing is, you know, if you're thinking of taking an immediate action against someone, you know, is it, are we doing it because it's to be punitive or are we doing it because, you know, there are legitimate grounds for concern or duty of care to our staff as an employer, for example? Now, you can immediately remove an individual from a practice list, but there's really only one set of circumstances that you can do, and that's when there's been probably actual violence on the premises, or there's been, you know, a, a severe threat uh, uh, levelled at a member of staff or individuals within the practice. But there's still a process to go through because that individual still has to be informed in writing, they have to be signposted to what they need to do now in order that they can contact a local uh, PCT or whoever it is that would reallocate them to another primary care practitioner. And what we always say is before jumping in, you know, by all means phone us and tell us what's happened, but you know, we would rather you didn't phone us and tell us that you've already booted the patient off the practice list. Yeah, because that's now taking steps to retract everything. So have you considered you know, things like remediation, setting up a face-to-face -face meeting, uh, certainly what you should be doing is putting it in writing, sending the individual a letter or other communication that leaves them in no doubt that what happened is entirely unsatisfactory. And if there's any repeats, you know, the sanction will be A, B, C, whatever it is, uh, that's open to you. There's also a kind of stage before uh, someone is removed from a practice list. Uh, and practices sometimes find this works well with certain individuals is you still write to them, you still tell them what's happened, why it's unacceptable, and for them to continue to be a patient and to access your services, 
you will require them to enter into a behavioural contract which will be drawn up and then agreed between both parties. And all this is evidence. Every step of the way, whatever you do when you're making these, taking these kind of considerations is documented, evidence it. Every informal discussion, anything that's discussed in meetings about it, formal decisions that are made, communications, letters, dates, keep everything succinct mm. so there's a clear audit trail. Because balancing this in a typical practice, it's an employee-employer relationship as well, remember. You know, the partners are the employers, if it's a traditional partnership set up. Um, there is a legal duty of care under the Health and Safety at Work Act to employers as well, because people shouldn't be expected to come to the workplace to be subjected to violence, abuse, and serious threats and intimidation. But it's finding that right approach for the individual the circumstances that's appropriate to what's happened. And doctors as well, because it's likely to be the doctors that will be the partners in your practice, you know, they also have to take cognizance of what the regulator says, the General Medical Council. So it's not just about the practice severing ties with a patient, it's a doctor ending professional duty, the relationship with the patient as well. And good medical practice from the GMC is quite clear about this. They, you should only end this professional relationship where the breakdown of trust between the doctor and the patient means that the doctor cannot continue to provide a good level of clinical care to the patient. So there may be good health and safety work reasons for doing so, but a doctor would always have to justify if the patient then goes to the GMC and complains that they've been kicked off the practice list, for example. Uh, the GMC will want to know that this bar, this threshold has been met. And they're quite serious about it because in that guidance, they finish by saying that serious or persistent failure to follow this guidance will put the doctor's registration at risk. I'm not sure how many doctors think about this or know about it. And when these kind of situations arise or decisions are being taken. So that's a fairly whistle-stop tour of just some of the issues there. Uh, I think Lise is going to talk about, we're maybe get some plans to develop a, a workshop, a Zoom-based workshop for later in the year. Uh, I would certainly think that could be expanded uh, to cover topics uh, but such as understanding different types of behaviour and strategies for dealing with them. Perhaps something about managing patients' expectations uh, through positive use of communication and the different opportunities and channels that you could use for that. Uh, but actually planning for positive patient interactions while anticipating uh, that things may go wrong and what to do about them. And also then a bit about you know, actually practical steps for managing unacceptable behaviour. So that's really where I wanted to leave us with the presentation today, but I'm you know, obviously quite happy now to open it up to questions and I'll do my best to sort of answer anything I can and uh, go away and think about anything I don't know about. So. Thank you.
Thank you, Alan. That was really interesting. Um, we just have one question in that um, Lisa's already answered. Just, just have you got any helpful templates um, for behavioural contracts? And we have one on the LMC, but do you have any other information that you can send us that we can send out to the people on the webinar today that might be helpful? No, we haven't. It's not an area where we would be as prescriptive as giving a template for a behavioural okay. contract. It's, 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 that's more of a, an employer's duty of care, employment law situation. Right. So use ours is, is the answer yeah. because we have fun. That's, that's lovely. And just one thing, because we are running out of a little bit of time. One of the things you mentioned was um, people used to just tell their neighbour, which is a couple of people. Now people go online to complain. Have you got any advice with dealing with online complaints about the doctors, the reception staff, the nurses, the practice in general? Because that is a question we get coming up quite often. Yeah. Well, first of all, you could choose to ignore it. A lot of practices do because, you know, people will see something. And quite often, as I mentioned earlier, you'll get other patients jumping in actually in support. So I guess your initial approach should be, well, do we want to know about this stuff or are we going to ignore it and hope we don't find out about it? If you're made aware of it, because you're made aware of it, because patients often do tell you, actually, if you've seen what's been posted about you on Twitter or Facebook or if you've got your own social media presence, you know, something might actually be posted as well. So you could choose to ignore it or you could uh, respond to it. Our advice is not to get sucked in uh, to the actual essence of what's been said, uh, even if it's quite offensive or blatantly untrue. We would always suggest just responding in a professional manner, noting that the issue has been raised and letting the individual know that the practice operates an open complaints procedure and signposting them how to access that and encouraging them to use that and just make it clear that you're unable to you know, resolve this or get into discussions on social media about the issue. It's difficult sometimes, especially you know, if some of the things that have been posted are quite offensive. Of course, no, absolutely. And, and you may have seen in the primary care bulletin um, this week that um, collections of complaints are starting again for the 9th of August. And this is a mandatory data collection. Practices are to submit their returns on the 30th of October. Um, but also they're, they're saying there's going to be some facilitated workshops um, run, run by NHS England and there's an email address for people to sort of contact if they're interested. And as Anna mentioned, we're going to run one on the 12th of October. So put that date in your diary if you're interested to follow up some more. And if you've got any more sort of anything you particularly would like us to cover then, just do let us know and we will do our very best to do that. So thank you, Alan. That's been really useful. Um, it's a difficult time. People are very tired and they're sort of overwhelmed with all the stuff coming in and the patient complaints seem to be absolutely ramping up and dealing with the complaint whilst dealing with the emotional effects, exactly as you said, has been is quite challenging for us at the moment. So um, thank you very much and hopefully we'll see you again in 12th of October, if not before. Thanks, Alan. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. So I think we're going to go down. Michelle, you've been having Wi-Fi issues. Are you okay now? Okay, that's fantastic. Otherwise, we can come back. So I've just got a couple of things to update you on. The first I wanted to talk about was the GMS-1 form, and there's going to be some changes to this. So this is around the blood and organ donation preferences, and practices may have been collecting this information and uploading it to Open Exeter. So just to highlight that this is going to change from the uh, beginning of September this year, the open extra element is actually being decommissioned. So practices will need to amend any registration forms to not continue to collect that information. 
a new GMS one form is going to be issued. And we do hold information on our website uh, around a registration template uh, suggested, uh, I think it's an example. So we'll make sure that that's updated as well. I believe it's to do um, with in May 2020, organ donation moved to an opt out process. And actually practices can't do anything around that. That's patient choice to opt out. So I believe that's why this is being decommissioned. So just be aware and to, from September to update any registration forms that you have. The second um, uh, item I want to talk about is PCSE and GP um, uh, payments and pensions online. So the new system, we all know it went live in June uh, this month. And there's been a number of issues with this. We've had a couple of queries that have come through with a common theme from practices, which we have raised with um, PCSE. And I thought I'd just highlight the responses that we've had to those. So the first one is around um, statements and payments uh, that would normally have given you a bit more information than sadly that you've got this month. And I think you're literally just getting a number, an amount with no detail attached to it. And PCSE have said they've apologised and this is not how it should be. They are making fixes to the next tranche of um, statements and information coming out. And I did speak to a practice, I think it was last week, and they highlighted that um, that actually this is the things have started to improve and more information is now coming through. So that's positive. The other information and the other query that we're getting is around the migrated pension statements. And currently, I believe that when you look in the online portal, it doesn't give you any information as to who the pension payments relates to, which is really unhelpful. You could probably hazard a guess um, looking at the figures. However, you need to know for sure who they relate to. Again, PCSE are aware of this. And unfortunately, the mapping over of that information hasn't, been, hasn't happened as expected. However, you can still get that information on OpenExeter. And whilst that's still available, PCSE are looking to fix that. It's not something that's going to happen um, imminently or uh, immediately because there's a number of other queries that they're trying to resolve urgently. However, you can get that information on OpenExeter um, and uh, any further queries with that, please do let us know. One other thing just to mention is that the BMA are meeting every other day with PCSE, given the level of queries and issues that have been identified. And when we spoke to PCSE, they did suggest that any pension or payment queries to ring the number, the PCSE number, as they'll be quicker to help. These will be logged, um, but uh, you can also do the inquiries, but they did suggest the uh, picking up the phone and speaking to someone as they felt they probably could either help with them at the time or that they'll be able to tell you if there's any themes that are coming in. And I think that's all I wanted to update on. Thanks. Um, that's really helpful, Michelle. Good to know the BMA are meeting um, every other day with PCSE. Um, Lisa, I think we're going to go across to you now, please. Thanks, Louise. I also just had a couple of items today. And one was the contract letter for 21-22, which came out last week, which people might have seen. But I, I just wanted to summarise the, the bullet points, the main areas that they've highlighted. So they're extending the funding for the PCNCD time uh, to remain at a full-time equivalent from July to September. Um, and that's for those participating in phase two of the vaccine programme. It does specify that it may be used for enhanced management or support capacity. Um, then, as I'm sure you're all aware, there are two voluntary enhanced services that they're also offering out um, from the beginning of July, 1st of July. One is weight management service, which is being funded at 20 million pounds uh, nationally. The other one is a long COVID service, which is attracting 30 million 
nationally. So just a quick summary of both weight management, and we're waiting for more information on both, but weight management, um, as we know, those uh, who are obese are likely to be more at risk of the consequences of COVID. Um, so they are trying to encourage a proactive approach, the identification of people who are um, obese. So the, there is um, an incentive there to engage with patients and um, work with those who are keen to make behavioural changes. Um, and that would be referral to weight management services. And there's a reference to developing digital weight management services in the letter. Staff training, a protocol, practice protocol for the support and identification of patients, um, an obesity register and patient support and referral. Um, and that is costed £11.50 per patient living with obesity um, who's referred to the weight management service. Payment's going to be capped, but can be reviewed by commissioners and payment will be made quarterly. So that's that one. And then the long COVID service um, focuses really on education and training, knowledge of local pathways, coding, trying to look at plans, practice plans to reduce inequity of access and self-assessment and declaration um, to qualify for payment. And that declaration will look at workforce training, how local pathways have been embedded, data coding and, and the access. Um, so 75% of the payment will be on sign up and will be paid monthly. 25% will be on a satisfactory declaration. Um, and that will be based on the 1st of January 21 list size. Um, we're reviewing both of those as a, as a team and I said we're waiting for a bit more information but I think it would be fair to say that the GPC has flagged up some concerns particularly around the workload associated with the weight management service so we'll look at that in a bit more detail and perhaps pick it up again. Lisa, can I just butt in? So this is a new question. Is there a sign up for these um, enhanced services? We haven't seen anything. No, we haven't seen anything. So we will keep an eye out for it, but we haven't seen it. Okay, thank you. So it's quite, it's interesting. So due to start in July and there's no sign up process and we've only got a week, haven't we? So if that, but... Yeah. Um, so the second item I just wanted to touch on was the mandatory vaccination for those deployed care homes. Um, so, as we all know, people living in care homes have been particularly impacted by uh, COVID and particularly vulnerable. Um, so there is a push to sustain high levels of vaccination amongst that, that population and those who are caring for them. So um, although around nationally, I think 84% of staff are vaccinated and have had two vac vaccinations, I understand there's huge variation regionally, so they're looking to try and get those rates higher. So this will apply to all CQC regulated care homes, i.e. those ner providing nursing and personal care. Um, and they're going to only allow entry to the premises to those who can demonstrate a complete course of vaccination, and they're suggesting that will be via the NHS app. There are some exemptions. It will only be indoors. It excludes friends and relatives, those under 18, uh, those coming on site to do maintenance, um, those providing urgent assistance and those with medical exemptions as per the Green Book. Um, so those exemptions include people with a previous systemic allergic reaction to um, the COVID-19 vaccination or any component of that vaccination. But we are looking at those exemptions in a little bit more detail. So we'll try and send out a bit more clarification. 
Um, they're also saying that there's a 16-week grace period before the legislation will come into force. So just to, to raise your awareness, and we'll probably post a bit more on that as we hear a bit more. Thank you, Lisa. There's just one comment said that they think the sign will be August. Yeah. So that's possibly a suggestion, but um, we just don't really know at the moment, do we? Okay, so one more question come in. Um, do they have to change terms of their contract to introduce this? This will be the care home mask um, exemption for um, vaccination, I think. Good question. I had a look at the gov.uk guidance earlier on this morning. I didn't see anything around that, so perhaps that's, that's something for me to follow up, see if I can find out. Okay, thank you, Lisa. Um, and just finally, I'm just going to share my screen. Yes, okay. Um, so this is just um, something that we wanted to share. We are um, sadly seeing more and more practice managers who are feeling overwhelmed, um, burnout, stress, and just sheer workload. So we just wanted to share that we know you are spinning plates like you've never spun plates before. Um, there's exhaustion and there's just a feeling of just overwhelmingness that we all hear in the news about the winter's going to be difficult and we don't know about the flu boosters, the COVID boosters, it all just feels a little bit too much. So all we would just say is if it's possible to do so, try and catch one of the plates before it crashes down take the issue to the partners and between you discuss how you might be able to delegate it, resolve it, maybe agree not to do it, whatever the challenge is. And that's quite a difficult thing to do when you're feeling just in survival mode and we all know how that feels. Um, but maybe talk to a trusted colleague, another practice manager, um, one of us, one of the practice manager supporters, just to go through what you're feeling at the moment um, because we want to try and prevent burnout, stress, and you going off and feeling actually you can't cope. So before that happens, please have a think about your workload. And even if you're feeling bouncy and buoyant and everything's okay, which is great, then also think about how it's working well and how you can just develop perhaps some more of your team to share the workload as it goes on. And um, just there are some few links there. Obviously, we'll send this out to you so you can you can catch up with the links yourself. But as an individual, don't forget we're here. You, you've got all our details, so please do come to us here. We can help in any way. Just a chat through is fine. I had a practice manager in the other day and just said, I'm feeling an XYZ. Is it just me? I said, no, it's not. She said, that's fine, Louise. You don't need to do any more. I just know, now know I'm not alone. And that's absolutely helpful. If we can be of help in that way, that's fine. Looking after you too is a coaching um, tool that we recommended from NHS England. Don't be off put by the word coaching. It can help you with any issues you've got at the moment, workload, home life, home, anything. It's just for primary care. It's there to support you as practice managers. Um, also for all other members of your team. A practice manager support I mentioned, they are all currently working as practice managers. They know exactly how it feels. So if they help to talk to a peer who really knows what it's like to have all been bombarded um, as you are all at the moment, do talk to one of them. But just a couple of apps I've put on there that might help you if you're struggling to sleep or with system mental health and wellbeing. There are a couple of there, um, Sleepio and Headspace. There's also an NHS hotline that's um, been developed through COVID and is still running and it's um, linked with the Samaritans Hospice UK and Shouts have all developed that. There's a phone line, line there. For your team, as I said, the coaching and looking after you for um, the team is also looking after your team. 
So if you just think your team could really do with some help in any way, either to get re-motivated, to try and talk through some issues, to sort of build together as working as a team, um, do contact them. They are there to do group training for you. It is free. So I would encourage you also to use them. We've written a lunch and learn that you can have access to and how to thrive in general practice. And that encourages sort of mental health conversations. Sometimes starting the conversations is quite tricky. Um, and that can be, and this can be run at lunchtime um, if you wanted to do that with your team. And finally, we did some webinars um, over the winter months, um, some for practice managers and some for the admin teams. And we have recorded all those. They're all available for you on our website if you want to have a look. And there are some resources there shared with them, Lucy Hadley and her team. And then again, some top tips for managing how to get through, how to turn things around sometimes and have a more positive attitude. And we know you haven't always got the energy to impart that to your team, but there are some resources and there are some people who can do. So um, that's just something we wanted to share with you, and I hopefully that could be quite helpful for some of you. So I'm going to stop sharing there. Um, I just see there's something. Um, yeah, PCSE can't cope with it anymore. I don't know what to say to that. Um, I know when we had PC, we had Robert Ramsden from PCSE on, and somebody put in the chat. Then I think it's going to break us. It's so difficult. Um, I don't know what to suggest that anybody can help with that. Everybody's in the same boat. I don't know whether that feels better or it feels worse. As Michelle said, the BMAR meeting with PCSE every other day to, to highlight issues. Um, I don't know, Michelle and Lisa, if you've got any words of wisdom for our practice members now, when, when it feels like it's just it is a bit of a straw, isn't it? And the camera's back sort of thing. I think it's been going on for so long with PCSE. That's the issue, isn't it? And the issues just seem to mount up and never get resolved. So, yeah, words of wisdom. I don't think I've got any, only that we're here. And if there's any queries that you want to share with us and there's anything that we can help with, we will do our very best to help you resolve them. Um, and if you've got, a, and I guess I don't know too much about this, Michelle, you might know more than I do, but is there a forum for PCSE for people to put in what their particular issues and they can see what everybody else has got to get to sharing some top tips? So is that something that's happening at the moment? I'm not sure. There is a free, there's a frequently asked questions section that they are continually updating. So it's worth having a look at that. And I don't know if we're going to do an FAQ document today, um, but we need to make sure that that links out there. Um, you can sure. income. I mean, if people think that would be helpful for us, you know, you can we, we can sort of host a forum, but it's one more thing to look at, isn't it? And when you're in trying to sort one thing out, do you think of getting your head up and trying to sort of look at another forum, remembering where it was and see what the information is and how can we help? I don't know whether that's helpful or not. Lisa, have you got anything that you can add? to? I'm, I'm really sorry. I think I would just echo what Michelle said. Mm. So let us know if anything we can do. We are here. If you just want to ring and rant, that's absolutely fine. That would be fine. Um, so just got a comment in. It wouldn't be so bad if they had specific terms of service that they had to abide by. There doesn't seem to appear to be a time scale for them to complete anything at all. Um, certainly something that we asked PCSE when they came to join us was, um, what, what I think it was 40 days, 40 working days to respond. And we just said, well, what, what's your new arrangements? And how, how are you keeping it in touch with it? And I don't think there are um, any particular, um, any particular, uh, what's the word, the quality assurance things, any boundaries by which they have to respond. Um, I think they are doing their best. I think Robert Ramson came across well, actually, when he came on the um, session with us. He didn't pretend it was going to be perfect. Um, and they're doing their best with it. But it's... Um, it's just not acceptable, is it? And we know it's not. If that you said yes, and I don't know what I've suggested now, but you want you say yes to. Um, but if we if if it if it is something that we can do with sharing information, then we're happy to do it. Um, we know all the links, BCSD help, but nothing's ever put right. 
and they should never have been given controlled remittances coming into practice. I don't think there's anybody that's not going to agree with you on that. Um, and it's far, far from perfect. Yes, it is. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of a really positive thing to end on, and I'm really struggling now. Um, yeah, we know we're here. Well, we're here. We're going to be back in a couple of weeks. And if we've got any more news on PCSE, um, anything we can get, we are getting Robert back. He did promise, and he is coming back in July. Um, it's just a system we're having to work with. The only good thing, and this is a tiny, tiny, tiny silver lining on a big black cloud, is that we did a pensions um, webinar just on Monday. Actually, Sue Scott from one of our practice management supporters was hosting that with um, Sanderson's accountant. And she did say she saw a pilot in September of what it was going to look like, and it looks a lot better than that now. So that's kind of good. Um, it's not perfect, but they actually have been listening. So she said actually, Obviously, it's a very difficult time, but they will be changing it and they will be developing it. And so that's the only good thing, I think. So we just have to cling on to that really at the moment. Um, so thank you very much, Michelle and Lisa. Is there anything else either of you would like to add for today? But, okay, it's nice to see you all. Thank you very much for joining us and we will see you all again in a couple of weeks. And we do know we've had feedback from the conference to say this time isn't always ideal for all of you. So we know it's not. It's never going to be ideal for everybody, but possibly in September, we'll try looking at alternating the days a little bit so some more of you can join us live who might not be able to at the moment. So it is something we're listening to. We're looking out for that and we're going to work through it. So thank you so much for joining us. Bye. Wessex LMC's supporting you and your practice.